Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. I want to welcome you here this morning. Thank you for being here. My name is Luke. I serve as one of the pastors on staff here at Mercy Road. And I want to invite anyone this morning. We usually don't make this invitation, but I just feel like the Spirit's moving in this way. If you steward the gift of tongues and you would like to practice that gift, I want to invite you to uh, intercede on behalf of the, uh, the lost and looking. And I want to invite you, the, the prayer room is a safe, private place to practice the gift of tongues. And so I want to just encourage you that if that's you this morning, that you would find yourself in the prayer room warring in the spirit against a demonic realm that is keeping people from the word of God. And so if that is you, you are invited to steward that gift with, with wisdom. Let me just offer a moment this morning. Uh, we got some feedback that were like, Luke, we, you know, the worship pastor, she prays, and then there's like a host and they pray, and then the pastor, they pray. It was like up, down, up, down, up, down. There's a lot of praying. And so uh, we want to we abbreviate that some, but this morning, I know that we're supposed to do something for a second here. And so would you all just stand with me for a moment? We did this with the, um, the, the band this morning and with some of the teammates. I want to ask you to stand. I want you to close your eyes. Would you please close your eyes? I want you to just hang with me here for a minute. I want you to imagine that you are your human Velcro. And throughout your week, certain things stick to you that you don't want on you. A conflict unresolved, uh, any anxiety or depression unaddressed, uh, a secret in your life unconfessed, a negative um, interaction with a brother or a sister in the Lord or someone who is lost and looking. The burden of the weight of the world upon your shoulders, your business in the red, your children screaming on the way to church this morning, discovering that 465 exit was closed. There are many things that attach themselves to us throughout the week that the Lord is inviting us to shed away from us so that we might be fully consecrated to hear the voice of the living God in our lives. Even the morally good things can get in the way of the greatest thing, which is the face of Jesus. So would you have the courage and take a second to imagine what is attached to you right now that the Lord wants to rip away from you? In Jesus' name, you can, have, you can have a seat. This is a picture of my three children and their four pumpkins that my wife grew in her garden this morning. Um, you can put that picture back up there. I, I wanted to say that this is not an announcement. Um, <laughs> and apart from immaculate conception, that's not an option. And so they, they uh, are, my, those are my three little ones, my five-year-old, my three-year-old and my son just turned two yesterday, which is pretty cool. And my wife grew four pumpkins in our garden this year. And the whole plan was like, hey, let's, let's grow pumpkins because pumpkins are starting to get really expensive these days, right? Let's just grow our own and save the, the, the money from buying them from a, you know, Stucky's farm at premium prices. When my kids decided that they wanted me to carve them certain pictures on the pumpkins, they found the pictures online that they wanted of course, with my wife and my presence with them. And my, my 
oldest daughter wanted hearts, and my middle daughter, she wanted a unicorn, and my son, he didn't care. And so we just made him a little bear face, a little profile of a teddy bear. And here's what I discovered about the pumpkin carving process, is that when you carve pumpkins for your children, they will stand next to you and bug you at every step of the way. So I want you to imagine yourself with a big carving knife in your hand. And three little ones come up to you and say, Daddy, is it done yet? And I'm like, I haven't even cut the lid off yet. Okay? And so they run away and play for about 90 seconds. And they come back and they say, Daddy, is it done yet? I said, well, I just cut the lid off. And now I'm scooping out the innards. The, we call them like the pumpkin goop or guts or whatever. And so we're scooping that out. And so they run away 90 seconds later. They come back, Daddy, is it done yet? And I said, we haven't even gotten to the bottom of the pumpkin. There's still a lot more goop to go. And then finally, after I've told them enough times, be patient, wait, I'm still carving this pumpkin for you. They'll come back while I'm drawing a picture of a unicorn and a bear and some hearts. I'm carving out these pieces and they'll come up to me and say, Daddy, is it done yet? And I'll look at them and I'll say, listen, kid, pumpkin carving is a process. You need to be patient and wait on your daddy. Oh, okay, dad, thanks. As if I didn't say that every step of the way, I had told them from the beginning, carving a pumpkin is a process, Mila. All you have to do is wait. Be patient. The face is coming. You gotta be patient. I know that's humorous, but how often do we interrupt God humorously how often do we interrupt God and say, are you done yet? And in his merciful patience, he's responding to us, I'm still working on it. Here's my question I want to pose to you this morning, friends, is how many of us want the product but are unwilling to embrace the process? There are those of you here who are here this morning who are longing and hungering and thirsting for something from God that he has promised in your life, and the thirst is growing for that. The hunger is growing for that. You believe that God has given you a promise in your life, be it from the word of God, the counsel of God, the spirit of God, and you believe deep down that this is something that you will see in your lifetime. But just like a child... You keep going back to God and saying, are you done yet? And God is patiently, with mercy, responding, I'm working on it. You might want to be the CEO of your organization, but you've only been their employee for nine months. You want him to propose to you. And yeah, he is the one but you've only been dating him for like six weeks. Relax. Next, Netflix and <laughs> don't chill. <laughs> you want the house to sell, but it's only been on the market for two weeks now. You want your kids to be in the AP classes, but baby girl and baby boy are in kindergarten. You want deep, 
friendships, like more than anything, you want these deep friendships. But every time you show up to a social gathering, you pretend you're everyone's BFF like that. Let's make it extra spiritual. The Bible underwent a canonization process, which means that the Bible over time was essentially decided by the Holy Spirit, and we discovered what the Holy Spirit decided about what would be in the Bible. And that canonization process was a rubric used by the early church to ultimately decide what's in, what's out. We know what's out. It's called the Apocrypha. No shade to my Catholics. It underwent a process. Sanctification, which is just a really fancy word for God inviting us to shed away the things of the flesh so that we might have room in our lives inside and outside for the things of the Spirit. That's called sanctification. It's a process. Why don't we trust the process? Why don't we trust the process? We have been so molded and shaped into a people that want it and want it now that we miss the greater gift of God working in our life along the stages. Even though you do have this promise on your life, even though you feel like the Lord has spoken to you through the counsel of God, the word of God, the spirit of God in some form or fashion, you're like, when God are you going to show up because you made this promise on my life? All the while, he's saying, I'm working on it. I haven't even cut the lid off the pumpkin yet. Why are you rushing me? We come by our impatience very honestly. As a matter of fact, the people of God all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Covenant, were an impatient, impatient people. And we've inherited that. All people have inherited that. You see, when Moses led the Israelite nation out of slavery in Egypt and into the wilderness for 40 years, he eventually dies. But not before God gives him the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And then the people of God are supposed to carry with them this new revelation, this new law, simplifying the value system of God. I mean, after all, they were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They needed a little structure. They needed a little guidelines and, and rails, so to speak, to live well, live fairly. After Moses' death, Joshua, he's commissioned to be the leader that will ultimately fulfill a promise God made to Abraham many generations before. You see, when God built a relationship with Abraham, he built it in a covenant. A covenant bonds. The difference between a contract that binds, a covenant bonds. And in that covenant, God is going to fulfill his promise to Abraham whether or not Abraham fulfills his terms of the agreement. That's what makes it a covenant, is that God is going to fulfill it whether you uphold your agreement or not. So when God makes a covenant with his people, he has every intention of fulfilling it. He fulfills it first through Abraham, then through Moses, and then onwards to Joshua, the new leader of Israel after Moses dies. And part of the promise made to Abraham is a blessing, a large family of people, and land of their own. 
And after they were, were released from captivity in Egypt and were on their way to the promised land, they spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they had such a tough time obeying God. But finally, Joshua was able to lead them into the land of Canaan, the promised land. However, when they got there, they realized people already are living here. And as the Bible tells us, which is a beautiful book of history, as it is God's revelation of himself, we'll see that the people that were inhabiting the land of Canaan was um, devoted to unspeakable wickedness. Some of which it wouldn't even be helpful to communicate in a church service because I don't think we could stomach it very well. Just to give you a little bit of a primer, the, the fertility rites, the pagan gods, Baal and Asherah and other ones I don't even want to name because they don't deserve to be named are ancient, vintage, demonic gods that still live on today. But they had all of this power over the people of the land of Canaan and many cities were in Canaan and each one of these cities had a, a different god that they were devoted to. I mean, this is paganism at its core at its principal height, the fertility rites, the, the grotesque, debased activity of religious prostitution, religious fertility rites, and sexualized everything. And it was so debased and grotesque. And it would be hard for all of us to imagine that level of corruption religiously. And so when Joshua takes the promise from God to Abraham into the land of Canaan, he's met with many, many evil people. Now, this wasn't their land. This was God's land. And Israel was going to come true on a promise made to Abraham. Now, what is often unknown about Israel's campaigns throughout the Old Testament is, I hear this often, man, God of the Old Testament seems to be pretty violent. There's a lot of just death and destruction and bloodshed. What's with that? How does that reconcile with Jesus, who seems to be, you know, essentially not violent? How does that reconcile? Well, here's a little bit of history that I think would help, is that every time the Israelite nation engaged in any kind of campaign, they always first offered a peace treaty. They always offered a peace treaty first. This is no different than Jericho. Every single time, Israel took a new portion of the land of Canaan, this battle that the Lord was waging on an evil, evil, corrupted population. First, a measure of mercy and grace was offered. There was a new level of mercy introduced to these city groups, and a peace treaty was always the first thing that was offered and often the thing that was denied. So understanding a little bit of that context, understanding how that plays a very vital part in the story of Jericho in Joshua 6. Now you understand what Joshua and the Israelite nation were faced with, an evil, debased, corrupt population of people with religious sexual practices. And God empowers them to go and first offer a peace treaty, mercy, before they take the land from its previous inhabitants. This victory that Jericho 
falls under the Israelite nation. This victory is the Lord's. It's often misunderstood that Israel won battles. Israel never won a battle ever. God won battles. God won every battle in the Old Testament. So let's look at Joshua 6.1 and we can see how the people of Israel had to engage in this process that Joshua was leading them to take this city that was promised by Abraham. Because remember, God's going to fulfill every promise he makes. So that means that Joshua would now have to lead these people up into Jericho. And the crazy plan somehow works. Look at Joshua 6.1. This is the word of the living God. It says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred from the Israelites. Okay. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men and do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. At first read, this sounds like the most ridiculous plan. Like if I was in the army, the small selection of people that were going to battle against Jericho, I'd have been like, that's the plan. <laughs> We're going we're gonna to march around this sucker with ram's horns, and that's going to do it. That's going to make this happen. But at closer look, in this plan, the emphasis is on the number seven church family. Look, seven priests, seven trumpets, seven days of marching, seven circuits of the city on the seventh day. The number seven is written clearly into the life of Israel at every level. And seven carries the meaning of completion or perfectly completed in the Lord's eyes. So look at verse six. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's cov covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. I'd have been like, dude, this plan is no good. If this is how we're going to have these fortified walls of Jericho guarding the most demonic activity to ever transpire on planet Earth, if this is how it's going to get done, like this is just drills. Is this is boot camp. When are we going to see these walls actually come tumbling down? Because we know the promise Abraham was made by God. We know that the land of Canaan is ours. We know that. This plan seems very silly. 
But there were also two different kinds of horns. Check this out, right? Israel would use two different kinds of horns. I never knew this. Did you know that? They would use trumpets that were silver for wartime. They would use ram's horns for celebration. Okay? The Jericho campaign used ram's horns because it was the seventh year, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Israel was not waging war on Jericho. They were celebrating God's redemptive work throughout Israel's history, and they knew that God's promise of land and were marching from victory, not for victory. They knew the promise. They just didn't trust the process. God made a covenant bond with Abraham that included the people, the land, and the blessing. And the Jericho campaign intended to fulfill that was on the agenda. That was part of the fulfilling of the promise. So this is the part of the sermon where you may ask yourself, I don't know if I like my pastor anymore. That's this part, so you can feel free to stay focused. If your theology of the Israel-Palestine conflict is being shaped by TikTok, baited news headlines, Twitter, and reels, you do not have a theology of the Israel-Palestine conflict. And I say that with great confidence because there's not a lot of things I feel confident in life, but this is one of them because I've studied this history for many, many years. And as a pastor, I publicly condemn anti-Semitism at every level. And I also condemn violence at every level. I publicly condemn anti-Semitism as that was the heart of Adolf Hitler. And there is no place for anti-Semitism anywhere, especially God's kingdom. My heart aches for the loss of life in war-torn countries across the world. Ukraine, Russia, Israel, Palestine, and others that don't even make the headlines, I am going to call on you to acquaint yourself with the Old Testament, specifically the first five books of the Bible known to us as the Pentateuch. A Hebrew would call that the Torah. To develop a whole picture of what is a never-ending conflict in the Middle East. So if you desire a supplementary content on understanding Israel's history, come find me afterwards. I recommend a book called A History of Israel by John Bright, among, among others. If you desire to understand the dynamics and the challenges of the harmony of the church in Israel, uh, I recommend the chapter 10 from Eric Metaxas's book, uh, Bonhoeffer, which is an autobiography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Chapter 10 is the church and the Jewish question. But because God's mercy is consistent throughout the whole counsel of God. It is my belief, clearly, that God is making allowance of time for the people of Jericho to see the Ark of the Covenant and hear the sounds of the trumpet and repent of their devotion to demonic worship. Now Jericho means a little something different, doesn't it? Now you can see a new measure of God's mercy in the face of demonic activity. God will not be circumvented by the enemy. There is no competition. God's power is supreme over the power of the devil. 
He will win. He has already won and will win every single time. And what Israel didn't know is that the marching around these walls once, twice, three times, I'm out. Like, I'm out after three times, but then a fourth and a fifth and a sixth was God's mercy for the people of Jericho to hear and see the sounds, see the sights, and see how Jehovah, Yahweh, was different than Baal and Ashura, and the long list of demonic presences in the land of Canaan. Look at verse 12. Joshua got up early the next morning. The priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Some of us right now feel like our life is going in circles <laughs> and that God has made a promise on your life. And it's a beautiful promise. But part of what he's asked of you is to trust the process that leads to the fulfillment of that promise. And some of you are at day two, day three, day 100, year five, year 10 of what feels like circles. You're just walking in circles. You're just like, dude, I am getting nowhere. Why did God promise this in my life and I am getting nowhere? But yet we have a beautiful a philosopher, a theologian, a Presbyterian pastor, he said this, Francis Schaeffer said, Joshua did not take the city merely by a clever human military tactic. The strategy was the Lord's. You can't speed up God's promises, fam. If God has placed a promise on your life, you cannot expedite that. You can't rush him. You can't, daddy, daddy, is the pumpkin done yet? You cannot rush God. It would have been so hard for me to trust that God knew what he was doing given the delay that I was experiencing if I was in that army marching circles around the walls of Jericho. Isn't that just like us? Isn't that just like us? Here's reputation number one, is that God is never in a hurry. Never is God in a hurry. And some of you right now need to repent of this notion that God is a genie in a bottle. And that if you just snap your fingers, pray the right prayer, tithe the right tithe, or do the right thing, all of a sudden the promises of God will be fulfilled in your life. And that is not how God works because God will not be rushed. He will not be rushed. As seen in the six days of marching, some of you need to hear this this morning, delays in your life are not God's denials. They are God's designs. And some of you need to accept that. Some of you need to feel deep down that God is not denying you because he's mad at you. The blood of Jesus covers you if you trust in Jesus. You have the Holy Spirit sealing you. God sees you as he sees his son imputed righteousness into all of us. If you have 
Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. If you do not have Jesus, trust in Jesus today. Do not wait a second longer. God loves you. Accept Christ into your life. But those of you who are like, well, God made a promise, you know, 12 years ago. Hasn't come true yet. God must be slow. Or I'm just, you know, ticking God off at every turn and I can't get God to, you know, approve of me or like me or love me or, or put me high on his agenda. That is not how God works. Look at verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time and around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! The Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. Isn't it cool that the relationship that Israel had with Rahab, and more specifically, she would have heard the sights and, the, and, uh, and see, seen the sights and heard the sounds and had confirmation that Jehovah was, in fact, the superior God to the Hebrew nation. But keep away from, verse 18, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. Okay, so Jericho was promised. It was a promised land to Israel, made to Abraham, land that belonged to God. The spoils inside the walls of Jericho were to be put into like the holy Fort Knox, okay? So that these very spoils would not spoil the Hebrew nation. Here's reputation number two. If you're taking notes, God will restrict some good things in your life to guard you from their spoiling nature. If God fulfilled a promise in your life and he fulfilled it on your schedule, or on your timeline, you're liable to be spoiled by whatever good thing that is. You might be tempted to take the credit for that fulfilled promise. Do you understand? God's reputation is that he will guard you. As a follower of his son Jesus, someone who has the Holy Spirit, God will guard you from some good things. You're like, what is that? what's wrong with silver and gold? Like, I don't get it. Like, some good things have spoiling nature to them. This is true of the church. I believe that God will restrict some good things from the church so as to guard the church from those spoiling nature things. And the church is so much like the world that it would, oh my gosh, the church is like so much like the world these days. And it drives me bananas that the world takes little notice of us because we look so much like the world. And so God protect us and guard us more from good things that could spoil us. We imitate the world's methods. I'm about to get fired up here. We imitate the world's methods. We cater to the world's appetites. We solicit the world's approval. And we measure what we are doing according to the world's standards while trying to reach the world. That makes no sense. God wants to guard the church from the spoiling power of the world so that the church has the power to be a light to the world. 
This is ultimately what it means for Israel to be a blessing to all nations. And Israel has fulfilled that assignment in partiality. After all, the Messiah did come from the Jewish nation. Uh, the scriptures came from the Hebrew people. John 4.22 reminds us that salvation is of the Jews. And it has also been a blessing in the written scriptures. In the church age, the church is the Gentile Christians and Messianic Jews. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer from Eric Metaxas's book, uh, Bonhoeffer, it says this, what is at stake is by no means whether our German members of congregations can still tolerate church fellowship with the Jews. It is rather the task of Christian preaching to say, here is the church where Jew and German stand together under the word of God. Here is the proof where a church is still a church or not, which corresponds well with Galatians 3.28. There is no Jew or Greek, bond or free, male or female. We are, are one in Christ Jesus. The new kingdom of heaven introduced by Jesus is very much unlike the previous kingdom of hierarchy. Israel needed to trust the process as well. We have inherited quite well this impatience of God's people. Look at verse 20. We'll wrap this up. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. God could have had the walls fall on day one. That is well within his power. God could have had the walls fall on day two and every day after that. That is well within his power. Reputation number three. God keeps every promise he makes. And if you have experienced God's promise fulfilled in your life, you know this deep down. Can I get a witness to the promises of God kept in the people of God, you are here this morning because God's promise has been true in some way in your life or another. But there are those of us who are like, come on, Lord Jesus, carve that pumpkin. And in his love, he's saying, trust the process. So there, there are so many of us in this room that need to take a deep, deep breath and trust the process. God is methodical, not magical. He wants to invite you to trust him along the way. There are many nights where I will lay in bed and I'll think to myself, God, a thousand spirit-filled people by 2030? Man, it just seems like too, too big and bold of a vision, God, I, I don't know. And I hear the same thing every time. Luke, something that grows and lasts takes time. Trust my process. Every single time I look at my daughters or my two-year-old son and I say, when are they going to learn? I hear the same thing from God. Trust the process of parenting. When I see a couple that are madly in love and are about to get engaged, and I come up to them, hey, how's the engagement going? They're like, it's had its ups and downs. So, well, hey, trust the process of getting to know each other 
over time. Okay? Everything is a process. Everything good comes by means of a process. So those of you who are doubting God's goodness this morning only need to be reminded of Hebrews 6.12. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Come on, there's a lot of impatient people in this room. But through faith and patience, you can trust the process. And when you do, you will get pumpkins carved like this. Look at how beautiful these pumpkins are. Come on, unicorn. Come on, hearts. Come on, teddy bear. That's right. Your pastor can carve pumpkins. You didn't know that, did you? But those of us who are like children, who are rushing God, hurry up. You done yet? You done yet? Praise God. God's merciful fuse is very long. This morning, you have an opportunity to bring before the Lord whatever it is that is a promise in your life that has gone unfulfilled, but God is inviting you to embrace the process that leads to that promise. Okay? But before we get back into some music and sing together, I want to invite to you, uh, invite uh, uh, Jenna Cruzy up onto the platform. I want to introduce to you Jenna Cruzy. Would you just give her a, a round of applause? So Jenna and I have known each other for years. I've known the Cruzy family for many years. And Jenna and I, we did student ministry together for years, uh, years ago. And then you helped plant our parent church, Mercy Road Carmel. And you helped plant this. You've planted more churches than anybody I know, really. And we're grateful for that. But I asked Jenna to share uh, with us her own testimony of process. So one more time for Jenna Cruzy this morning. I don't know if I should be offended that I'm the example this morning. I feel like I'm one of Luke's kids who was just w not very patiently waiting for the pumpkins. Uh, and I like how we were color coordinated this morning. So thank you, Luke. Uh, good morning, Mercy Road Northwest. Uh, it's a weird phenomenon to be up here and sharing a story that's still in process. I'm just going to tell you now that the story I'm about to share with you is not wrapped up in a pretty bow. And that can be an uncomfortable thing for people in our culture, right? And specifically for me as well, because it hasn't worked out perfectly just yet. So uh, I, what I've seen in my life sometimes is that it takes what feels like a lifetime to fulfill a dream. If you were to ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up in second grade, I would tell you that I wanted to be an author. Why did I want to be an author? It's because I loved stories. And more importantly, I knew that God had used books often to bring about his transformation in my life. And so I knew that the written word was powerful and that God had made me creative and that he had placed a calling on my life. And so, you know, I majored, I did what I was supposed to do. I majored in English writing, but then an experience leading teenagers and young adults and mentoring them brought on a new calling in my life. I decided to follow it, and I spent the next couple years hanging out with teenagers and putting myself in places where I could share the gospel. Then I married 
and I had kids. And I decided to be a stay-at-home mom. Life was entirely too full to be able to include writing in that. My margins were super small. We're talking like an hour in a week, and I would, I would use that time when I could to write. But then my youngest went off to kindergarten, and uh, my, my war- margins were finally widening. And so I finally started the blog, right? And I started to take writing more seriously. And so that brings us to today, where I'm currently writing a children's devotional uh, so that families can learn how to share the gospel in their everyday lives and discover him even in the most unexpected places. That in your creativity as a parent, you can find the gospel and discipleship can happen anywhere, even in those frustrating moments that you call your kids' screen time. And so uh, what I want to share with you guys, though, is that writing can feel like a really lonely endeavor. You're constantly going out on a limb, and the process can be painfully slow, and you can wonder where God is in the midst of it. On top of that, something popped up in the media related to my devotional topic it kind of felt like what Luke was sharing, that I was going to have to enter into Canaan, into the demonic forces, quite literally, if I was going to keep writing on this topic. And for the sake of the time, I can't get into all of that right now, but it had me second-guessing. That's the important part. It had me second-guessing whether it was God's will for me to keep pursuing this, this project on this particular topic. So I did the hard thing of neglecting my writing time for an entire morning, that precious time when your kids are off at school, and I found a quiet park where there were some beautiful trails. And I had what I would call a DTR with God. If you know, you know, if you were born in my time, you would know that means determine the relationship with God. And I cried out to him. I literally went out there with God and I said, if this is not your plan for me, if this is not of you, I will stop this writing thing. I will put away my dream if that is what you want. And so I sort of just had to submit to him and lay it all out there. And so after a a long hike with many detours, I get to the end of the walk and I see one of those, uh, it's called like a little library It's like one of those small little, it looks like a house, and it's just literally sitting in the middle of like the end of this trail. It's like as if the heavens had opened up and there's a light shining down on this little library. And I'm like, there's something in there for me. God wants to share something with me. And so I go over to it and I start flipping through the books that are there in that little library, expecting God to share something with me. Like, God, am I supposed to be writing this book or not? Is this from you or not? And I don't have time to share all the details this morning, but God spelled out for me plain as day in one of those books inside that little library that first he just wanted my praise. I found the one Christian book in there I think it was written in the early 90s based on the cover art. But I opened to a page. The first page I opened to was a book about, or was a a page about our calling. 
And he said, and this book said, we are not primarily called to do something or go somewhere. We are called to someone, capital S. We are not first called to special work, but to God. And I knew right then that it was God's yes. It was God's way of saying, keep doing the thing, right? Keep writing the book. And so fast forward to the last couple of months, and um, I've had to start submitting my work. And a little side note for you guys, if you've not been in the traditional publishing realm, something you need to know about it is that it's commonly known that you're not able to get very far without a literary agent to represent you. That's the biggest step of the process. And so my editor had told me about this particular literary agent, and I knew who she was. She was a highly respected uh, author and, and um, literary agent. And when I looked up her website to get some in instructions on what to do next, it said to contact her if you had 50,000 followers. <laughs> I was like, okay, God. How about 600? I don't know. But in my confidence, knowing that God had spoken to me and given me his yes just a little while before I submitted anyway. And guys, this happened so quickly. But a week later, I had an interview. And a couple days after that, I got an invitation to sign with this literary agent. She's now representing me in my book, Idea to Publishers. This is stuff that only God can do, right? But then I get to the last part, the hardest part of it all, and it's the waiting. Oh, guys, the waiting is so hard. It's, I, I've, I've literally been working on this book idea for the better half of a decade. Maybe it's been seven years, I hope, right? That's the, that's the important part. Uh, and for the last several months, I've been pitching and waiting on these publishers. A publisher will express interest and then ghost me, as the teens would say, for, for uh, forever. Or they'll have me submit a revision that will take me weeks only to end in a no. And Luke says he doesn't remember this detail when he asked me to speak, which I think is funny because I think Clint said the same thing last week. Uh, but a couple of months ago, he handed the board and I this book called The Circle Maker. Along with the Bible, guys, this book has literally gotten me through the last few months. Because of this book, I've literally been praying circles around my book. And uh, for weeks and for months leading up to this moment, this book is predicated on the story you guys just heard of the Israelites and, and other history makers of God's people praying big prayers in the face of opposition and being willing to look silly in the process. God asks his people to go around the wall one time. And they do, but the wall isn't moved. And so they go around a second time. Walls not moved. And a third time. And then they're like, oh my gosh, we're looking so silly. What are we doing this for, God? But they keep going and they keep trusting. And so they go around a fourth time and a fifth time, a sixth time, and even a seventh time. 
and not a single brick so much as budges from that wall. But then God tells them to blow a trumpet and give a shout of praise. Woohoo, right? And they've been walking that Highway 465 circle around their city seven long and taxing days. And then the walls crumble before their very eyes. Friends, your desires and your dreams may very well be God's dreams and desires for you too. But his timeline is probably not your timeline. And it allows us to rely on him. It keeps you close to him, following him. And that's ultimately where you belong. The tension and the beauty of living in the unknown is that we get to choose to place our faith in God, who is willing to make us look silly for an incomparable closeness to him. And so if you have been uh, dreaming of starting an organization or a company, maybe you just ought to start praying for the city and, and God will give you a vision for that new organization or endeavor. What would it look like if you didn't freak out every time you go a day without a match notification on your dating app, but you just kept showing up for the crazy life God's called you to live in? And in your obedience, he begins to put the pieces together of the puzzle that is your life. Church, I invite you to begin praying circles around your dreams, circles around your needs, around your family, around your people, your city, and your church. Pray everything. And it says, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4, 7. Will you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for sharing us the story of the Israelites and for giving us hope to keep going. God, may you empower our church to be obedient, to be courageous, to be bold so that we might see your will play out for our lives and see your glory spread throughout the world. In Jesus' name, amen.